We are looking this afternoon at Article 24 of the Belgic Confession, Article 24 found on page 64 in our book. The title of that article is Man's Sanctification and Good Works. We believe that this true faith being wrought in man by the hearing of the Word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit sanctifies him and makes him a new man causing him to live a new life and freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that on the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man. For we do not speak of a vain faith, but of such a faith which is called in Scripture a faith working through love, which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in his word. These works, as they proceed from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable in the sight of God, for as much as they are all sanctified by his grace. Nevertheless, they are of no account towards our justification. For it is by faith in Christ that we are justified, even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good works, any more than the fruit of a tree can be good before the tree itself is good. Therefore, we do good works, but not to merit by them, for what can we merit? Nay, we are indebted to God for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let us, therefore, attend to what is written. When you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. In the meantime, we do not deny that God rewards good works, but it is through his grace that he crowns his gifts. Moreover, though we do good works, we do not found our salvation upon them, For we can do no work but what is polluted by our flesh, and also punishable. And although we could perform such works, still the remembrance of one sin is sufficient to make God reject them. Thus, then, we would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be continually vexed if they relied not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Saviour. Uh, Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, we come here to the end of that order of salvation which we've been taking note of as we work our way through this section of the Belgic Confession that deals with soteriology. We saw that that order of salvation begins in Article 16 with our election. It is the foundation and the beginning of our salvation. In the confession itself, the next step in this order of salvation is God's promise, especially as that promise is given in Genesis 3, verse 15, and that's found in Article 17. The third step is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, the fulfillment of the promises, or the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises, and that's dealt with in Articles 18 and 19. 
The fourth step is the satisfaction of Christ for us. Articles 20 and 21. And then our justification, Articles 22 and 23. And finally, in this sixth step, our sanctification, Article 24. Now, if you look closely at this Article 24, you will see that the Confession spends by far most of the article describing the relationship between justification and sanctification. And it does this, of course, because the Church of Rome had mixed up the two doctrines. The Church of Rome taught that our sanctification or our good works must take, play a role in our justification. And the Confession wishes to make clear that that is not biblical doctrine. That is not what the Scriptures teach. And so almost all of this article is devoted to the proper understanding of that relationship between sanctification and justification. But we do find at the very beginning of the article, in the first sentence, which is only three and a half lines of a, this rather long article, a statement of what sanctification is. And we want to spend uh, some time on that first statement then of the article. So we're going to divide our discussion into two parts. First of all, what is sanctification as it's described here in this article? in that first sentence of the article, and then what is the relationship of sanctification to justification as described in the rest of the article. Now if you look at that, at the, just that first sentence now, you'll see, I think, that the Confession says three things about what sanctification is. And the first thing it says is that sanctification makes us new men. This uh, true faith sanctifies him and makes him, that is the believer, a new man. Now that language, new man, and its companion also, old man, is language that's found especially in the Apostle Paul's letters. And it's found especially in three places. You have the terminology used, first of all, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Only you don't have the word new man here, just the term old man. Paul says in Romans 6, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So there you have the old man. Then if you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul uses the term new man. But here he uses it in a different context, in a different way. He says there that Christ has abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, 
thus making peace. That is, the two men are Jew and Gentile, and he makes one new man of these two, Jew and Gentile. So he's really talking about the church there as the body of Christ. But here that body of Christ is described as one new man that Christ has made in the union of Jew and Gentile. We're not going to say any more about that passage because that's a little bit different use of the term than we find in the other passages. Then we have uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, both of the terms, old and new man where Paul exhorts the Ephesians that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And finally, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10, a passage parallel to those verses in Ephesians that we've just read. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So when you look at those passages where Paul uses this terminology, you see that the old man is uh, we as we are in Adam. Fallen, dead in trespasses and sins, corrupt, seeking the things of this world, hating God and loving the things that belong to this world doing only wickedness and nothing else. That's the old man. And the new man is what we are in Christ. The new man is that new creature who comes into existence by the work of regeneration and who continues to be transformed by the work of sanctification. So the new man is ourselves in Adam, and the, or the old man is ourselves in Adam, and the new man is ourselves in Christ. The old man is that man who is dead in trespasses and sins, and that new man is the man who is alive and obedient in Christ. But these two, then, are united in us now because that transforming work of sanctification is not yet complete. And so we are both old men and new men now. We are new creatures in Christ, but the old man is still with us. And so Paul exhorts us in Ephesians chapter 4, put off the old man and put on the new man. You need to be doing these things. You need to be sanctifying yourselves. You need to be putting off sin, and you need to be putting on holiness. You need to be mortifying the flesh. You need to be nurturing that new man in Christ Jesus. 
so that he takes over more and more within you. We are at war with ourselves because we are both old men and new men. Now, that's what the confession has in mind then when it talks about sanctification making us new men. The new creature comes into existence by the work of regeneration and the sanctification then continues to form us more and more according to the image of Christ to make us more and more new men rather than old men. It transforms our minds so that our minds are conformed more and more to the truth of God. It transforms our wills so that our wills are submitted more and more to the will of God. It transforms our behavior so that our behavior is uh, more and more in obedience to the commandments of God. In that way, we are becoming more and more new men in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, there are two additional things, I think, that we should say about that. First of all, what you will often hear Reformed Christians talking about today is old nature and new nature. They say we have an old nature and we have a new nature. I do not believe that is an improvement over the scriptural language that we have here. In fact, I believe it is language that tends to some confusion because it suggests, doesn't it, that we kind of have two natures. We have an old nature and we have a new nature. And these two natures are somehow united in us, are some, somehow there present in us. But the idea of old man and new man is clearly, in some measure anyway, figurative in the sense that in the one nature which we have, the human nature that we have, there is both a new and an old. There is the remnant of sin that still is with us. There is the flesh that must be put to death. And there is the work of the Spirit of God in us as well. We are both old men and new men. You will find, in fact, that the Revised Standard Version actually uses the terms in these passages that we referred to, old nature and new nature. Also, in the English Standard Version, the New International Version, and the New American Standard Bible, you will find the terminology old self and new self. That's better, I think, than old nature and new nature, but there's no reason why we should not stick with a more correct translation of the Greek and use old man and new man. Old man describing what remains of sin, all that corruption of nature that still is in us, and new man describing the work of regeneration and sanctification. But there's one other thing that we should note here, and that is, when you look at these passages in the Greek, you find that the Apostle Paul uses two different Greek words for our English word, new. 
And we don't have any, any other word, really, that we can use uh, for new. And so we're forced, kind of, into the translation of both words as the word new. But the two Greek words, neos and kainos, in the Greek, have different connotations to them. And I think by looking at the different connotations of these two words that the Apostle uses in this connection, we can get a little bit more um, understanding of what this actually means. The word neos is used in Colossians 3, verse 10. And that word means new with regard to time. That is, new as recently having come into existence. So if you were buying a new vehicle, that is, a, a vehicle that had just been manufactured, you would use this word, naos. But the other word, kainos, means new with regard to some quality or other. Not necessarily new with regard to time, but new with regard to quality. And this is the word that the Apostle uses in Ephesians 2, verse 15, and in Ephesians 4, verse 24. And so, if you were buying a used car, you might say, I bought a new car. But it's not new in the sense that it's been recently come into existence, but it's new to you. It's new in that quality of having just been purchased by you. And in the context, then, of these passages, where Paul describes this new man as both neos anthropos, new man, and kainos anthropos, also new man, there are that connotation remains. Richard Trench, in his synonyms of the New Testament, in his distinguishing between these two words, actually talks about this terminology of new man versus old man. He says this, Apply the distinction here drawn, and it will be manifest that the same man, the same wine, the terminology is also used in new wine and old wine, the same covenant, new covenant, and old covenant, and so on, may have both these epithets applied to them. That is, both of the Greek words for new. And yet, different meanings may be and will have been intended to be conveyed as the one was used or the other. Take, for example, the neos anthropos, the new man of Colossians 3, verse 10, and the kainos anthropos of Ephesians 2, verse 15. Contemplate under aspects of time, that's naos, that mighty transformation which has found and is still finding place in the man who has become obedient to the truth, and you will call him subsequently to this change, naos anthropos. That is, after regeneration, he's a new man in the sense of time. He has just come into being. He is just recently a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old man in him, and it well deserves this name, for it dates as far back as Adam, has died. A new man has been born, who therefore is fitly so called. But contemplate again, and not now under aspects of time, but of quality and condition, the same mighty transformation, 
Behold the man who, through long commerce with the world, inveterate habits of sinning, had grown, grown outworn and old, casting off the former conversation as the snake its shriveled skin, coming forth a new creature from his heavenly maker's hands with a new spirit given to him. And you have here the kainos anthropos, the new man, one prepared to walk in newness of life. That is, this new man is new in respect to time. He's just recently been created. But he's also new with regard to quality. That is, he's transformed, he's changed. He's a a new creature now in Christ Jesus. So both of those adjectives that mean new can be applied to this new man. That's the first thing, then, that we learn about this sanctification. That it makes us new men. Men who have been transformed, powerfully transformed, from being sinners to being saints. Transformed from being what we were in Adam to what we are in Christ. And shall be, when this work is complete, all together in Christ. For the new man will be perfected and the old man will be completely destroyed. The second thing that the Confession says in this article about sanctification is that it causes us to live a new life. And here I want to go back again to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Because we are new men in Christ, we live a new life. The Apostle talks about that newness of life first in verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And then if you go down to verses 11, 12, and 13, he describes this newness of life in more detail. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So here you have the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Walk in newness of life. Don't walk anymore in that old life. That life of sin and of disobedience, of corruption and of wickedness. Walk according to the Spirit. Walk in obedience to the commandments of God, in love for God and for your neighbor. That's the second thing then. We have become new men, and that new man causes us to live a new life. 
The third thing that the confession says about sanctification is that it frees us from the bondage of sin. We were in bondage to sin, and we were in bondage to sin by the righteous judgment of God against the sin that we committed in Adam. God condemned us to death because of that sin, and part of that death is being dead in trespasses and sin, being in bondage to sin. But this work of sanctification frees us from that bondage. And instead of being slaves to sin, we become slaves of righteousness and slaves of God. And this new slavery we call the glorious liberty of the sons of God. So those are the three things then that the confession talks about in this article as belonging to our sanctification. It makes us new men. It causes us to live a new life. It frees us from the bondage of sin. It's a powerfully transformative work, and it's a work which is a long process, begins with our regeneration and goes all the way to the resurrection of our bodies in the last day. Then finally, the old man will indeed be destroyed completely, and the new man perfected. Now in that first sentence, the confession also talks about the means of this sanctification. And the first thing it says about the means of our sanctification is that this sanctification is by faith. We believe that this true faith sanctifies him and makes him a new man. Sanctification is by faith. It's a very important statement. Just as justification is by faith only, so sanctification is by faith only. When we talk about uh, justification, I think we find it fairly easy to understand that justification is by faith only. It's not by our works. But when we talk about sanctification, because we're talking about doing good works, it's harder for us, I think, to get hold of this idea that it is by faith only. It is not our work, but God's work in us. It's a gift of God's grace to us. It's not something, therefore, that we accomplish by our own will or by our own efforts. It can be accomplished, or to uh, put it a different way, we can sanctify ourselves only by turning to God and by asking Him to kill the old man and to quicken, or make alive, the new man by asking him to teach us his law, to break our stubborn wills and bring them into conformity to his will, and to change us by his power from being sinners to saints. 
We're deeply involved in this work of sanctification. We're always striving after good works. We're always striving toward the goal that God has set before us, the goal of eternal life and of perfection, perfect obedience. But we do not get there except by faith, except by a complete dependence on God for that transforming work. Sanctification is only by faith, just as much as justification is only by faith. The Confession also points out here, then, in this first sentence of the article, that this faith does not arise in ourselves, is not the effort created in us by an effort of our own wills. This true faith, it says, being wrought in man by the hearing of the word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit. In other words, this faith is also God's gift. And it is created in us by the hearing of the word of God. Now what the confession means by that is not especially that this faith is created in us by the reading or the hearing of the reading of the word of God, but that this faith is created in us by the preaching of the word of God. The preaching of the gospel is what we call the primary means of grace. As the Apostle says in Romans 10, verses 13 and 14. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear without a preacher? The hearing of the word comes through the preaching of the gospel. And Paul really emphasizes that in the verses that follow. How shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And then in verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So he's talking about the preaching of the gospel there in Romans 10. He says, this is what creates faith in us. The same thing is taught by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. In 1 Corinthians 1, where the Apostle says, verse 21, Since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
is through the preaching of the gospel, is through the, the means of grace, the primary means of grace that this faith is created in us. Our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 25 talks about the administration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism as a means of grace also. And I think we may add to that that the exercise of Christian discipline is also a means of grace, but the primary means of grace, that which creates faith in us and especially nourishes and uh, strengthens that faith, is the preaching of the gospel. But there are many who hear the gospel who do not believe. Why is that? The answer to that is that that preaching of the gospel in order to create faith must be accompanied by the saving work of the Holy Spirit. And God does not give his Holy Spirit to everyone who hears the gospel. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 2 that the gospel is powerful in two ways. It is a savor of life unto life but it is also a savor of death unto death. It both judges and saves, condemns and justifies. So there are three things that come together then in this means of sanctification. Faith is its means, but faith is created by the operation of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. That brings us then to the rest of the article and the relationship of sanctification to justification. And there's something about this in every one of the four paragraphs then that we have here in the article. And what I want to do, first of all, is just work briefly through what each of these paragraphs says. In the first paragraph, then, note that the confession, uh, uh, without mentioning the Church of Rome, talks about the Church of Rome's objection to the doctrine of justification by faith. And one of the objections of the Church of Rome to the doctrine of justification by faith alone is that it makes men remiss in a pious and holy life. That is, it makes men careless and profane. It makes men say, good works don't matter. If I sin, God will forgive my sin. In fact, they might even say, the more I sin, the more the grace of God will abound, and therefore I can just go on in my old way. And it cannot be denied that many have abused the grace of God in this way. But, the confession points out, that's not a proper understanding of justifying faith. The first thing that the Confession says in answer to that objection of the Church of Rome is that without this justifying faith, men would never do anything out of love for for God, but only out of self-love or fear of damnation. Now as the 
confession is dealing with this, we have to recognize what the confession is doing is putting sanctification after justification. And saying not only that both justification and sanctification are by faith, but that we cannot do any good works. We are not sanctified until we have also been justified. Sanctification follows justification. That's why we have this order in the confession from justification to sanctification in Articles 23 and 24. So what you have to do here is imagine then a man who who does not have uh, justification and who does not therefore have faith. Well, he will never, the confession says, do anything out of love for God because the same faith which justifies also sanctifies. And if he is not sanctified, he cannot do anything out of love for God. He cannot obey God's law. He cannot obey the first and great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, nor the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. He will never, therefore, apart from justifying faith, do anything out of love for God. He may do something out of self-love, That is, he may obey some of the commandments of God externally because he wants the praise of men or because he wants the approval of his own conscience. Or he may obey some of the commandments of God externally because he is afraid of condemnation. He's in terror of God's judgment. But there is no love of God in him. His carnal mind is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God and cannot be. He will never, without justifying faith, do anything out of love for God. That is, he will never obey the commandments. He will never be sanctified apart from this justifying faith. The second thing that the confession says that is that it is impossible that this justifying faith is unfruitful. A justifying faith also sanctifies. And of course, the confession is talking about, as it, as it says itself, a true and living faith. It's not talking about dead faith, like James describes in James 2. It's talking about that living faith that James describes, that faith which he says, I will show you by my works. That faith cannot be unfruitful. That's exactly the point that the Apostle Paul is making in Romans chapter 6. He's answering the objection of the Church of Rome to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we become careless and profane? Shall we become remiss in holy living because God justifies us by faith alone? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? 
It is impossible that this justifying faith does not bear the fruit of good works. And thirdly, the confession says, this justifying faith provides also a powerful motivation for doing good works. The Church of Rome says you need the motivation that your good works will contribute to your justification in order to be able to do good works. You need that motivation. And the confession says, no, you don't need that motivation. The motivation that rises out of justifying faith is the motivation of gratitude. Out of thankfulness, out of delight in God and in His work, out of love for God, we are powerfully motivated to do those good works which He commands us to do. That's paragraph one. And very briefly, in paragraph two, the confession says these good works do not count toward our justification. And they do not count toward our justification because they follow justification. We are justified before we do good works. We are justified by faith and we are sanctified by faith. Faith comes first. And a bad tree does not, that is a tree that does not have faith, a bad tree does not bring forth good fruit. Bad tree brings, brings forth bad fruit. And as bad trees, as old men in Adam, we do not bring forth good fruit. We need that justifying faith before we can bring forth the good fruit of obedience to God. How can it be then that our good works contribute to our justification? They come after our justification. In paragraph 3, the confession says, makes two points. First, therefore, we do not do these good works to merit. Now, we do not, that means we do not do them to merit our justification, but we do not do them to merit anything with God, any of God's gifts, any of the blessings that God has promised us. That is, when we talk about merit, we are talking about earning. We are talking about uh, making God obligated to us. We are really saying, if we are talking about merit, that it's only justice that God give to us what, he, what we want, the blessings he has promised. It's, it's like the, the worker in a company who has done his work and who deserves his wages. If our good works merit, then it's only justice that God gives us the blessing related to those good works. They're no longer, the blessing then is no longer of grace. It's not really even a blessing, it's simply doing justice, 
We do not merit. The confession says, in fact, we are indebted to God for those good works. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verse 13. And do not ever say, I have done what was my duty to do, therefore I deserve the reward of life. Rather say, I have done what is my duty to do, I am still an unprofitable servant. I do not merit anything with God. God is never under obligation to give me his blessings because of anything I have done. And yet, in this same paragraph, the confession says, God does reward our works. He does reward our works. But the reward is of grace. The reward is not something that he is obligated to give us, but is itself a free gift, along with all his other blessings. He crowns his own work and his own gifts with this reward the reward of everlasting life. In the fourth paragraph, the confession says, we do not found our salvation on these good works. And again, we may distinguish in the confession's discussion of this three reasons why we do not found our salvation on these good works. The first of those reasons is that even our good works are polluted and punishable. We do good works by the power of the Spirit, by the transforming power of the Spirit, but none of those works is perfect. They're all tainted by sin in some way. So, for example, when we um, do a good work, we may be motivated at least in part by a desire for the praise of men. It may be in obedience to the commandment of God. It may be in part, anyway, for the glory of God. But there is still in us that desire to get some praise from men for our good work. Or we may, in the course of doing a good work for a neighbor, we may say something that we recognize afterward was a wrong thing to say, a sinful thing to say. It doesn't undo all the good that was in that work, but still that work is tainted by our sinful words. None of our good works is completely free from sin. And, and that what the confession is saying in that statement is that means that even our good works deserve death. That the righteousness which God approves is a perfect righteousness. That if there's any taint of sin in us, in any good work that we do, that work deserves death. Strict justice demands that God punish even our good works, therefore, with death. All our righteousness is our filthy rags 
So that's one reason. The second reason is one sin, even if we could do a perfect work, even if we did perfect works all our lives and then committed only one sin, that one sin would be sufficient to condemn us. This is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. They obeyed God in the garden until the serpent tempted them. And then they submitted to the temptation of the serpent. And God did not say, well, the balance overall falls on the side of righteousness. And therefore I won't condemn you for the sin which you have committed. They died. They died for one sin. So even if we could be righteous all our lives, one sin would be sufficient to undo us in the justice of God. That righteousness which God approves must be a perfect righteousness. That's why we give thanks every day for the perfect righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third reason that we do not find our, found our salvation on these good works is a very practical reason. If we did found our salvation on our good works, we would always be in doubt and our consciences vexed. Really, this is what the Church of Rome wants from the people of God. It wants them to be in doubt with their consciences vexed. And wants them to be in doubt because the Church of Rome views itself as the controller of the grace of God. And it wants the people of God to be constantly coming back to the church to obtain this grace. Sin, you have to come back. You have to make confession to the, re- to the priest. You have to receive absolution. You have to do the penance that the church assigns to you and so on. Wants you to be vexed with doubt and fear. But Pelagians and Arminians also leave us in the same boat of doubt and vexation of conscience. Because ultimately they make our salvation dependent on ourselves and we are changeable. And so the question becomes, have I done enough? Was my decision real? What if I change my mind? I decided for Christ then, but what if I decide against him now? And so we're left in doubt without a solid ground for our assurance if we rely on our works. But God will have us rely on him, on his promises, on his faithfulness, on his unchangeability, on the fact that when he has begun a good work in us, he will also complete it. On the perfect righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, which cannot fail us. That's what faith is all about. It's relying on God. And in that reliance on God, we find a firm ground for our assurance 
of salvation. God will do what we cannot do. He has promised. So to summarize then, people of God, I think we have, I think we may say seven very important truths about sanctification here. First of all, it's a transformative work. It changes us from being old men to new men. From being dead in Adam to alive in Christ. From being disobedient to being obedient. Secondly, the sanctification is by faith alone. And that means by grace alone. Thirdly, this justifying faith bears fruit. It's impossible that it do otherwise, that it not bear fruit. Fourthly, sanctification follows upon, does not precede justification. Fifthly, therefore our good works do not count towards our justification. Sixthly, the proper and powerful motivation for doing good works, for sanctifying ourselves, is gratitude to God for what He has done for us in Christ Jesus. And that love for Him and that desire to please Him which follow from that gratitude. And finally, we do seek a reward. We strive daily for the reward. We buffet our bodies. We mortify the old man. That is, we put him to death. We labor intensively, but always by faith, through grace, for a reward which is not deserved, but is a gift of grace to us by our gracious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May God bless you with his word.